The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. I think that there is a core set of shared values that liberals have to embrace. You know, if they don't believe in a rule of law, they don't believe in the fundamental legitimacy of their constitutional order, that's a big problem. But as I said, probably the strongest argument in favor of liberalism is this pragmatic one, you know, that this is something that allows pluralistic, diverse societies to live in peace with one another. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Two weeks ago, I began what I call a three-episode arc on liberalism. Every once in a while, I like to do a few episodes in a row on the same theme. But I called this an arc because I viewed it almost like a narrative. Michael Walzer introduced us to what it means to be liberal. Then, Patrick Deneen provided a conflict between liberal and conservative values. So in this episode, Francis Fukuyama will help us resolve the conflict. Francis Fukuyama is a widely known intellectual and political theorist. He is the Olivier Nomellini Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and the director of Stanford's Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy. He is the author of many books, including The End of History and the Last Man, The Origins of Political Order, and most recently, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Now, I wanted to talk to Francis Fukuyama last, because he offers a balanced defense of liberalism. He recognizes the critiques from thinkers like Patrick Deneen, but believes moderation is the solution rather than outright rejection. Nonetheless, I found that I still have plenty of thoughts about liberalism, even after these three episodes. So, for those who want to hear my final thoughts on these conversations, there is a short bonus episode for premium subscribers to the podcast at Patreon or on Apple Podcasts. In the show notes, I'll provide a link to my Patreon page to make it easy to find. A subscription is just $5 per month. Like always, you can find a complete transcript of this episode at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Francis Fukuyama. Frank Fukuyama, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Frank, I'm very excited to be here with you. And uh, I've read so many of your books before and was a big fan of your most recent book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. One of the things on my mind as we kind of just get started 
is throughout the conversations I've had so far in this three-episode arc, one of the things that I've been finding is that a lot of the conversations actually center around values. And we'll get deeper into that as we go into this. But what is it that liberalism means to you? So when I'm talking about liberalism, you know, I need to define carefully what I mean by that. And I don't mean the way that it's interpreted either in the United States or Europe. In the United States, it's a left of center kind of progressive position that wants more state redistribution, more equality. And in Europe, it's more pro-market center right, cautious about an expansive welfare state. And I think both of those can encompass the kind of liberalism I believe in, which is really not based on economic policy, whether you have a big state or a small state, but on a belief in a kind of equality of human dignity that extends to the human race as a whole and in any particular jurisdiction is protected by a rule of law, by a state that enforces rules, but also is itself constrained by constitutional checks and balances. And, you know, I, I also say that there are three broad justifications, the first of which is a pragmatic one, which really reflects the origins of modern liberalism in the 17th century, that it came against the backdrop of Europe's wars of religion after the Protestant Reformation. And what early liberals wanted to do was to say that the regime should not be based on a strong set of values as those embodied in a particular religious doctrine, that what was important was the protection of life itself rather than the good life, and that you know, it was a pragmatic means of allowing people in diverse societies to live peacefully with one another. I think it also has a moral dimension, which was the second justification, which had to do with autonomy, because the reason that liberals believe that people are equal is that they have an equal capacity for choice and that, you know, choice is important to them. But in a way, that puts a certain limit on your enthusiasm for liberalism because, you know, it's deliberately not based around a strong set of communal values. And one of the objections that people have always had to liberalism is, you know, that it doesn't actually tell you how to live. You know, it's, it simply says you're free to make choices and you can determine your way of life. I think that if you live in an authoritarian regime, in a dictatorship, then that basic freedom to come and go, to express your opinions, to associate with whom you want to travel, to engage in economic activity. I mean, you really enjoy that. But I think one of the problems now in contemporary liberal societies is that that's not sufficient. I've had now a couple of debates with Patrick Deneen, who has tried to lay out a conservative post-liberal position, and his complaint you know, it goes back to the origins of liberalism, that there's no telos, there's no end of human life that liberalism seeks after, and he wants to restore that. You know, I think that's kind of absurd. I mean, we in contemporary America are simply not going to agree on an end of human life and what the good life is. We're way too diverse to have that kind of agreement. And therefore, that longing for strong community based on very deeply held communal values is simply not something that you're going to get in a liberal society. What you are going to get is peace, security, stability, basic freedom to come and go as you choose. Most liberal societies are rich because you have the protection of economic rights in addition to 
you know, your individual civil and political rights, and that leads to a level of prosperity. And I think those are really the, you know, the reasons that you should prefer liberalism to any of the alternatives out there. So, Frank, look, when your book came out back in April, it was very impressive. And in the book you write, it is liberalism rather than democracy that has come under the sharpest attack in recent years. That was a line that really struck me because we talk a lot about the democratic recession. We don't talk much about a liberal recession. And shortly before your book actually came out, Russia had engaged in its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And many described that as, yet again, an attack on democracy. I'd like to know whether you think of that as also an attack against liberalism. Well, it was an attack on both. You know, democracy and liberalism are close allies of one another, but they are distinct ideas and they're also reflected in a distinct set of institutions. You know, democracy really has to do with popular choice and popular sovereignty, and the institutions with which it's associated are things like free and fair multi party elections, whereas liberalism really is about the rule of law, the constraints on state power the idea that rulers cannot simply do whatever they want, but they have to be limited in their exercise of power by a rule of law. And the reason that I pointed to the attack on liberalism rather than democracy really has to do with the rise of global populism over the past several years, where you have you know, a number of leaders that have been elected legitimately in a number of countries, in Turkey, in you know, India, in the United States, with the election of Donald Trump. And the first thing that these populist leaders do is to attack the liberal institutions. So this is really what happened with Trump, that he wanted criminal indictment of his opponent, Hillary Clinton. I mean, the worst <laughs> outrage against liberal values was really trying to overturn the last election illegally. But, you know, this was true also of Erdogan, of Modi, and the like. Now, what many people have said is that once you attack and undermine the liberal constraints on power, then you begin to attack democracy as well. And I think that that's true. So, obviously, the Trumpian attack on the rule of law was meant to overturn a democratic election. Viktor Orban in Hungary has used his democratic election to gerrymander and remove the level playing field so that future Hungarian elections would be tilted in favor of his Fidesz party and the like. And so, you know, in the end, it ends up being a threat to both liberalism and democracy. But I do think that it's really those constraints on state power that are really central to a lot of people. If you ask, you know, why do populists across the democratic world admire of Vladimir Putin, the reason, I think, is that he's an unconstrained authoritarian. He doesn't have to worry about liberal rules or constitutional checks on his power, and they would like to do the same thing. You know, they say, I'm elected, the people want me to carry out certain tasks, and these laws, these courts, these judges, these bureaucrats, these media figures are standing in my way, and, you know, I want unconstrained power. So that's why I think the first attack really is on liberal institutions. Now, obviously, the line between liberalism and democracy, though, is not always clear. I mean, there is a line that you and Andrew Grotto had written in this piece called Comparative Media Regulation in the United States and Europe. 
where you wrote, freedom of speech is normatively regarded as critical to the proper functioning of a liberal democracy. And I think that we could break those apart and say that freedom of speech is both critical to a liberal state and a democratic state. Either one. I mean, it's critical to both. It's hard to imagine there to be genuine democracy without freedom of speech. And at the same time, it seems to be the most definitive form of liberal values that there is. I mean, when we think of liberalism, we think of freedom of opinion, freedom of ideas, freedom of speech. Where do you think the line really draws between democracy and liberalism? Well, uh, I think that freedom of speech is important to both liberalism and democracy. I mean, speech itself is a kind of individual freedom that's critical to the way that we understand ourselves, you know, that we are beings that are able to make choices to express our views on things. And the act of speech itself, the exercise of speech, is an important basic human right. But it's also important to democracy because democracies are pluralistic, but they need to make collective decisions. And if you're not able to have open discussions informed by evidence and the like, then you're not going to collectively come to good decisions. And so it also has a kind of pragmatic function in facilitating collective choice. And so freedom of speech is really important to both of them. I think, you know, the problems right now with speech really have to do with technology because the principle that, you know, there shouldn't be state constraints on speech are fine. But, you know, what you've seen in the last few years is the power of certain privately owned technology platforms to vastly amplify the voices of some people and to silence, you know, the voices of others. And I think that the classical view of free speech as a marketplace of ideas where good ideas will inevitably beat out bad ideas given sufficient discussion and interaction is not what's happening today because of the power of you know technology to really make bad ideas flourish in ways that good ideas have trouble competing with. And so that's why I think that freedom of speech has become a kind of neuralgic issue that has been troubling people both on the right and on the left. So I wanted to ask you about the differences between political and economic liberalism. There's a line in your essay, The End of History, political liberalism has been following economic liberalism more slowly than many had hoped, but with seeming inevitability. I don't want to dwell on the line. What the line brings out is that there is a difference between political liberalism and economic liberalism. But at the same time, you see a connection between the two. What is the connection? And are they simply aspects of the same idea? Or are they much more different than one another? Well, they're connected because, you know, the freedom to own private property, to transact, to engage in economic activity is among the freedoms that liberalism protects. But you can have that kind of economic freedom without having political freedom. And, you know, that's really the challenge that's been posed by East Asia over the last couple of generations, where you have a lot of countries that have economic freedom without having political freedom. I mean, the you know, most obvious example of that is Singapore, 
where you have really not anything like an open democracy, but you do have the protection of economic rights. And that's one of the reasons they've done extraordinarily well economically. But even in China, you know, the reforms that Deng Xiaoping introduced were based on a kind of liberal economic understanding where the household responsibility system allowed peasants to keep the surplus that they earned as a result of their own labors, and it gave them an incentive to produce more. And so China has developed a private sector. I mean, it's now being rolled back, but a lot of their economic success in the last 40 years has been due to the fact that they adopted economically liberal policies, including integration into the global trading system that really was the motor of their success. But China has also showed that economic freedom by itself does not inevitably lead to political freedom. Many people were assuming or hoping at any rate that it would. You know, this was kind of the core of modernization theory, where, you know, there was a view that if you had economic growth and you developed a middle class and countries became richer, people became better educated and better informed, that they would also become politically more active, interested in political participation, interested in more open debate. And China seems to be proving that wrong, that they've gotten rich, they've got a huge middle class now, but it's hard to see evidence that they actually want more democracy. Now, maybe that's not true because you know, we don't really know what Chinese citizens want since they're not free to express that. You know, you saw an outburst of unhappiness in the protests over COVID, but how widespread those are, whether that extends beyond the actual policy that they were protesting and goes to unhappiness with the regime as a whole, that's something that we really don't know. So we continue to make this link between political liberalism and democracy. You just did when you were talking about China and the way that they've engaged in economic liberalism and the movement to political liberalism should eventually move to democracy, but they haven't moved towards political liberalism or democracy so far. Do you feel that liberalism makes democracy more democratic or do you feel like liberalism constrains democracy? Look, I mean, liberalism is based on this principle of the equality of human dignity. So it already has an equality principle built into it. You know, liberals believe that people should not be treated differently by the law simply based on group characteristics. Now, of course, in actual <laughs> history, they didn't observe that. You know, they believe that all human beings should be treated equally, but they didn't agree on who is a human being, who is a full rights-bearing human being. And at the beginning of the founding of the American Republic, you know, it was only white men with property that qualified as rights-bearing individuals. And what we've seen over time is a great expansion of that. I would say that the way that it's related to democracy is that it established this premise of equality, and then people could fight about the question of who qualified. So in American history, you know, that led to a very bloody civil war over slavery and eventually, you know, resulted in the 14th Amendment that gave rights to African Americans. But then for another century, they continued to be dispossessed of those rights. Women faced a similar sort of struggle, Native Americans, you know, various categories of people. But I do think that it was this liberal premise that was also important in that struggle because what it allowed people to do is to say, 
black people are human beings also women are human beings also and ought to be treated you know as human beings because there is a ready-made framework for understanding the importance of rights and having a legal system that protected them so in that sense i think they were very close allies yeah i mean sherry berman's obviously written pieces about the way that it's impossible to really have an undemocratic form of liberalism I mean, to be able to have a truly liberal society, you need to eventually embrace democracy. I mean, the two generally move side by side in parallel with one another. I've tended to see that a lot of different forms of liberalism actually seem to not just complement democracy, but even make it stronger, such as freedom of speech, different freedoms of assembly. Even just by enforcing the rule of law guarantees things like free and fair elections. It's hard to imagine that you can have free and fair elections if there isn't a consistent application of the law. In fact, that's one of the reasons why places like Russia are not democratic is because they don't apply the law consistently. I mean, it seems to me that liberalism isn't the adjective that just explains the type of democracy that it is, but in a lot of ways almost intensifies the idea of democracy by making it more democratic. Yeah, that's right. You know, Shadi Hamid has just written a book about the Middle East in which he argues that we ought to be supporting democracy, but not liberalism. Even when democratic votes lead to lower rights for women, for gays and lesbians, privileges one religion over another. But he says that's more in tune with local culture and so forth. But the problem with that is that he also then asserts that if you have democracy without liberalism, that let's say you elect the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and then they screw up and there's another election and they lose the election, that they're just going to respect those rules and step away from power. And I think that's really questionable. It's very hard to see uh, populist or you know Islamist parties simply obeying liberal rules in which they follow the law to a T when it means that they're going to lose power. I think there's very little precedent for that. And that means that you also have to have the liberal rules in addition to the democracy. So the two really do go together. So your book is called Liberalism and Its Discontents. So it's not just about liberalism, but also the discontents. And in the book you write, once again, we see liberal ideas being stretched to the point of breaking. What point does liberalism break? Well, it's not a clear threshold. There were two forms of what I regard as excessive liberalism, one on the right and one on the left. The one on the right was, you know, what we call neoliberalism. I mean, it's really the belief in markets at the expense of, you know, any form of state or social control that I think had a very deleterious effect. So what's the right level of state regulation? Well, you can't say that clearly. You can say what levels are inadequate and which are probably excessive, but you know it's very hard to come up with a principle ahead of time that says, well, you need to regulate this and that, but not you know something else. I think that that's something that you arrive at you know in a way pragmatically by seeing what the consequences are of different degrees of state intervention. Now, on the progressive side, I think the problem was really that many progressives believed in a form of identity politics that was initially meant to achieve liberal goals, that is to say, making marginalized 
communities and groups aware of their marginalization and therefore empowering them to fight back and demand inclusion. And that was a liberal value. And that's really what the civil rights movement was all about. And in that sense, it didn't go too far. You know, my standard for what's excessive emphasis on identity is when identity becomes an essential category as opposed to, you know, one of several things that people believe in. So if your race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation becomes the single most important thing that anyone should know about you and the basis for employment or promotion or even the freedom to speak, then I think uh, you carry things too far and you're no longer liberal and you're undermining some basic liberal values. But what is an assertion of essentialist identity? You know, sometimes that's not terribly clear. Do you feel that some of the identity politics, the way that people have tried to associate themselves, whether it be with gender, whether it be with race, whether it be with any of the different characteristics that have come up in the past, do you think that that's somewhat an attempt to be able to establish a sense of community, a sense of belonging? Because it seems to me that if it is, it parallels some of the critiques from the right as well. Oh, of course. No, I mean, that's why people want to cast themselves, you know, in identity terms. And it's precisely because people want a sense of community. And, you know, people that look at democracy around the world know very well that many countries that aspire to be democratic are organized communally and they're organized around identities. So in Lebanon, I mean, that's kind of the classic example, or Bosnia, uh, you don't have anything like non-identitarian citizenship. You're a member of a community, you vote as a community. In Lebanon, political offices are allocated to the Maronites and the Shiites, and the Sunnis all get, you know, different political posts. In Bosnia, you know, you have separate communities voting. These aren't people longing for community. These are people that have lived in these strongly bonded communities for centuries, and they don't want to give up their language, their customs, their ability to control their own affairs. And, you know, in those kinds of circumstances, democracy really has to make a lot of compromises. Even in North America, the demands of Quebec nationalists, you know, for special treatment of the French language that wasn't comparable to the way English was treated becomes a kind of illiberal position. I mean, it's one that Canadians accepted in the interest of just getting along, but it did reflect this belief that the Francophone community in Canada was being threatened by the dominance of English in North America and that it needed to be protected and those traditions needed to be protected. So yeah, it's all about community. So let's go ahead and move over to the conservative critique. In your book, you write the substantive conservative critique of liberalism, that liberal societies provide no strong common moral horizon around which community can be built is true enough. This is indeed a feature and not a bug of liberalism. So when you think of it from that perspective, are you saying that liberalism is essentially inward-looking? No, it's not inward-looking. I think that it leaves people to their own devices in terms of the personal choices that they make. So we're not going to tell you that you have to be a Catholic and you have to you know, go to Mass regularly or whatever 
alternative, you know, religious sect exists. But, you know, you get to choose. Do you go to a mosque? Do you go to a church? Do you uh, worship at a Hindu temple? You know, that's all up to you. And so that's the essence of, you know, liberalism is that freedom, freedom of choice, and then the acceptance of life in a diverse community where you're going to be dealing with people that are different from you. That doesn't mean that you can't experience a sense of community. And in fact, strong liberal societies are full of what we call civil society, which is voluntary associations of people that are united around a particular interest or passion. They fulfill their communal belongings that way, but there isn't going to be a single overarching community that applies to the nation as a whole, except in certain areas. And then this gets into the discussion of national identity, which I think is also important for a liberal society, but it is going to be, you know, a national identity that is itself liberal. But is that something that is apart from liberalism? Like when we think about civil society and people getting involved, is that coming from values that are coming from another place, or do you think that that is embedded within liberal values themselves? I don't know that they're embedded in liberal values. I think that the need for nations turns out to be a very pragmatic necessity because, you know, the institutional expression of liberalism is a state that can enforce a rule of law and actually the existence of a common set of laws and things like an independent judiciary that makes judgments about the law. But the way that human communities are organized, states don't have universal jurisdiction. They have territorially limited jurisdiction. And it's actually a good thing that that's true because I don't think we want to live in a globe in which there's one government that forces everybody to behave according to one set of laws. Given the fact that states are necessary to enforce liberal rules, and given the fact that there's a diversity of states, you are going to need nations, and you're going to need people that are loyal to particular nations and believe in the legitimacy of those nations. And so I wouldn't say that you know, the need for a nation is deeply embedded in liberal values, but I think it turns out nations become the necessary vehicles by which people can protect and defend liberal values. You know, there's a very concrete example of this going on right now, which is what's happening in Ukraine. So Ukrainians are fighting and dying in very large numbers to maintain their independence and sovereignty, which includes a defense of liberal values. They don't want to live in a dictatorship. But are they fighting for, you know, the liberal values themselves, or are they fighting for their homeland? And I think it's impossible to separate the two. They wouldn't be fighting for the abstract principle of liberalism. I mean, they're not traveling to Myanmar to fight for the rights of people there that are also being oppressed. They're fighting for their Ukrainian freedoms. And in that sense, you have to have the liberal values embodied in a particular nation, you know, for them to actually have impact and for them to have the emotional weight that's needed. So, you know, I think nations remain necessary for liberals, even if they don't necessarily derive directly from liberal principles. In fact, one of the things I've argued both in the liberalism book and in my previous book on identity is that that's one of the big gaps in liberal theory. 
what are the boundaries of a particular nation. I don't see any liberal principle that allows you to make an easy decision that the border between Mexico and the United States should be the Rio Grande River. That's not based on anything that a liberal theorist will tell you, and that's something that's notably absent from John Rawls or John Locke or any of the great liberal theorists of the past. And I guess my thought is, I don't know that it's necessary for those questions to be answered through liberal theory or liberal philosophy. I mean, it's possible to have things like even civil society itself, the desire to be part of that community to be able to make things happen. That doesn't have to be necessarily an expression of liberal values for it to necessarily complement other liberal values that might exist. I mean, I would think that there might be multiple different philosophies that need to exist within a community to be able to make a democratic society function. Yeah, that's right. I think that there is a core set of shared values that liberals have to embrace. You know, if they don't believe in a rule of law, they don't believe in the fundamental legitimacy of their constitutional order, that's a big problem. But as I said, probably the strongest argument in favor of liberalism is this pragmatic one, you know, that this is something that allows pluralistic, diverse societies to live in peace with one another precisely because, you know, they reject a strong principle of social order. So in your book, you do write that the answer to these discontents is not to abandon liberalism as such, but to moderate it. So what should we use to moderate liberalism? Well, you just got to begin with individuals, because moderation was one of the four cardinal Greek virtues. And I think that a lot of people growing up in Western societies are not taught to be moderate, particularly. You know, every graduation speaker in the United States typically has some trope where he says, you know, you should follow your passions wherever they may lead. And that's not a call to moderation. That's actually a call to immoderation. So, you know, one of the ways that you can promote moderation is in changing the way that people think about themselves and their relationship to their community, that maybe taking things to the extreme is not the best way to live, that just because X is good, it doesn't mean that 10 times X is 10 times better. So we believe in economic freedom and property rights, but that doesn't mean that kind of absolutizing economic freedom and property rights necessarily leads to a happy outcome. We can all believe that we want to exercise individual autonomy, but taking that to an extreme where, you know, autonomy, regardless of what is chosen, is a value, I think also undermines community and the livability of a society. So, you know, that's the sense in which I think moderation as an individual virtue is important, but it's also an important political virtue that our politics should not run to extremes. That's something that's pretty obvious right now in the United States, where we are extremely polarized because people take you know, their underlying principles to extremes. The concern I have when we say that we're going to moderate liberalism without having something to moderate it against is that it just asks people to hold back in terms of their liberal values, but nothing to balance it. Is there a secondary set of values that we should be thinking about to be able to moderate against liberalism? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you also, in a liberal society, live in a community 
So individual freedom typically has always been thought of as being balanced against the needs of the community to make certain communal decisions. And, you know, there are lots of examples of that. I mean, the most obvious one being things like security and national defense. Liberal societies really sometimes force their young people to go into the army because there's a overriding common interest in national defense or to give up you know, certain liberties in order to pay their taxes, in order to have certain kinds of support for fellow citizens. But that's kind of a high school civics understanding of liberalism and what it needs to be balanced against. So the big critique that you mentioned that came from the right, and in some ways even comes from the left, involves trying to have this sense of community. And we kind of keep coming back to that as being the argument, not even argument, but the thing that liberalism is tempered against. When I think about democracy, that is also something that involves intense community engagement. Whereas when I think of liberalism, I think of something as being very much based around individualism and individual rights. Is it possible that the idea of liberal democracy itself opens up the opportunity to be able to balance the two against each other, to kind of moderate liberalism against democracy itself and to moderate democracy against liberalism? Well, liberalism is based on an individualist principle. You know, what I said in the book is that that's immediately a difficulty because human beings are by nature very intensely social animals. And actually, one of the sources of alienation in a liberal society is the loneliness of liberal individualism. So, you know, one way of interpreting liberalism is not to say that we are all these atomized individuals all making individual choices, but the choices we make are actually choices about community, about voluntary associations, you know, about families, about neighborhoods, about private organizations, and then about, you know, the nation as a whole. And the way we ought to interpret our individual freedom is it's basically a freedom to engage in communal activity of different sorts. And I think that in that sense, yeah, I mean, if you want to call that kind of democratic principle instead, that's fine. But I think that that actually has been the way that many liberals have interpreted their liberal values. You know, Tocqueville, for example, was an early, he didn't call himself a liberal, but he was in effect an early voice for liberalism. And, you know, the thing that people remember from democracy in America is the art of association. You know, the fact that Americans joined organizations, they had churches and clubs and all sorts of ways of connecting with one another that didn't revolve around the state necessarily. And he argued that this was really necessary to sustain democracy. Tocqueville is a great example because it's really not an accident that one of his good friends in England was John Stuart Mill. So, I mean, there's definitely a tie between Tocqueville and liberalism directly. As we kind of look to wrap up, and we're thinking about liberalism, obviously we have the war in Ukraine. Obviously, there's threats to democracy and threats to liberalism throughout the world. What do you see as the greatest threat to liberalism at this moment? Well, right now, it's the geopolitical threats, I think, that are at the top of everybody's list. You know, Russia and China, we just got back from a visit to Japan, which is like Germany just decided or announced at least that they're going to double their defense budget because of worries over what China is going to do in the future. And so that's near and present danger. I think that there's also this internal threat uh, of populism 
in many democratic societies, beginning with the United States. I think the news on that front has been a little bit more hopeful over the past year, but it hasn't gone away. And there's still a lot of people with very illiberal views. You know, I think at the moment, probably more on the right than on the left, but the two basically stimulate one another. And that's a situation that's not healthy for our liberal democracy here at home. So would you say that the greater threats exist externally or internally, like within the countries or from external actors? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the external and the internal threats feed off of each other. You know, Putin has been very supportive of populist nationalists all over the world, and they have been supportive of him. But I think our system could be brought down by either one of them. So Larry Diamond and others have described our age as one where there is a democratic recession. The quote that I opened up with talked about how liberalism is under even greater attack. Would you say that there's also a corresponding liberal recession throughout the world? Well, I think actually what is described as a democratic recession is a liberal recession. You know, the rise of Hungary, Poland, India, Turkey, these were countries where it was the liberal part of the liberal democracy that was being dismantled, less the democratic part. As I said, you know, once you eliminate the liberal checks on power, then the democracy begins to be eroded as well. But I think that actually, it's less a democratic recession than a liberal recession. Well, thank you so much, Francis Fukuyama, for uh, joining me today. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak to you about liberalism. Once again, the book that you wrote was Liberalism and Its Discontents. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Justin. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.